Let us pray. Father, on this holy night, as we contemplate the suffering of our Lord, as we contemplate Christ's institution of the most holy Eucharist of his body and blood, as we contemplate his example as a servant, we pray that you would come among us by your spirit, that you would teach us, and that you would make us more like Jesus. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for being here. In St. Luke's account of the night of our Lord's betrayal, we read that among the disciples a dispute arose as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And that really gives us a background for everything that we hear read here in St. John's Gospel, as we heard read by Deacon Julie just a few minutes ago. Because here in St. John's Gospel, we have an unexpected twist. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, not suspecting that Judas was up to something bad, or even knowing what Judas would do, but rather Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Even as I emphasized in my sermon last Sunday on Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, things are not spinning out of control. This is not some plan, as I said last Sunday, which has gone awry. Jesus understand what is going on. He is in control of things. And he knows that it is for this very hour and for this purpose that he has come into the world. Jesus is in full command of the situation. As commentator Leon Morris says, the threshold of Calvary seems an unlikely place for a statement of sovereignty like this, meaning what I just read. But indeed, this is the eternal Son of God acting in perfect obedience to the Father's will. This is Jesus the Christ carrying out his sovereign purpose, the purpose to which all of the law and the prophets pointed. This is Jesus entering into that very purpose and moment in time and history when the glory of God would be demonstrated. This is the consummation of his mission. And now, and now in full control of things, he does that which shocks, astonishes, and even repels his disciples. For he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. But why? 
what was the purpose and the meaning behind this action? Certainly it is an act of extreme humility and one of loving service. Foot washing was a role never performed by someone from the higher echelons of society. Never. Nor was a disciple, according to customs, ever required to wash the feet of his rabbi or teacher. The one task a hired household servant could never be required to perform on behalf of the head of the house was to wash that person's feet. This was a task reserved for slaves. A task reserved for those who were of the lowest status in the culture. Now remember, we're going to have foot washing in just a little while, but we're all wearing pretty nice shoes and socks. And we walked in on paved concrete from an asphalt parking lot after we left our carpeted and hardwood flooring in our houses. But people in that day, more often than not, lived in homes with dirt floors. And they walked everywhere with sandals or some type of shoe or sometimes barefoot. And roads were unpaved, which meant they were either dry or dusty. Or they were muddy and a real quagmire. In addition, animals moved about everywhere, right? Beasts of burden. And we know what happens when beasts of burden are around. And that all got mixed in with the dirt and mixed in with the mud. And also in most villages, people threw household waste and toilet waste out of the house, out into the street. So that gives us a little bit better of a picture of how nasty and crusty people's feet were. And I'm not trying to be funny or um, engaged in hyperbole, but that's just the fact. This was a very unpleasant task in the ancient Near East. And here we have Jesus, the eternal Son of God, removing his outer garments. And also as he does that, moving away from the table to the outside of the circle, if you will. The way that folks dined, they reclined when they dined, so there would be a table at the center with the food on it. Folks would recline in seats or couches with pillows with their head in the upper part of their body in toward the table. Their feet were out to the outside, so it was kind of like, in a sense, like spokes on a wheel with a hub, if you can picture that. But Jesus moves away from the center. He moves away from the inside. He moves to the outside. And I think there's significance in that in this hour. And he begins to wash his disciples' feet. A beautiful and poignant example of humility and servanthood. And while this is significant and must not be overlooked, there's something even more significant to which Jesus is pointing in this act. Because Jesus is doing much more than giving simply a lesson in humility, although that lesson is abundantly clear here. That, the lesson in humility, the disciples could have grasped, even if they didn't like it, even if it made them uncomfortable. But Jesus' action here also signifies something much deeper. Something which they would only understand as he told them after the hour was over. Only after the fact would the full significance 
humility and love of this act be grasped. The deeper and eternal significance of this act is seen in Jesus' exchange with Peter. Because from the time that Jesus wrapped himself in a towel until the moment Peter spoke, trying to stop Jesus from washing his feet, there had been utter and complete silence in the room. Probably from the disciples' shock at what Jesus, their teacher, was doing. And again, they would only grasp the eternal symbolism of this action after they saw Jesus die. In this moment, Jesus takes up a towel. In just a few short anguishing hours, he will take up his cross. Peter tries to refuse Jesus' act of love and service to him. But Jesus tells Peter in his lack of understanding, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. This is not just about the custom of foot washing. This is about the cleansing of one's entire being, the cleansing of one's entire being from sin. A cleansing which could only be accomplished by the sinless son of God himself. The one who knew no sin yet became sin for us. A cleansing which could only be accomplished as the prophet Isaiah foretold through Christ the suffering servant. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The disciples were utterly dependent on Jesus far more than they were able to comprehend. Not just for that moment, not just in terms of temporal needs, but for cleansing from their sin. Sin which they could do nothing about in and of themselves and through their own efforts. It is only through the washing which Jesus provides that they and we can be cleansed from sin and know true life in God. St. Ephraim the Syrian prayed in the fourth century, we give glory to you, Lord, who raised up your cross to span the jaws of death like a bridge by which souls might pass from the region of the dead to the land of the living. To pass from the region of the dead to the land of the living. It is only through Jesus and only through embracing the scandal of his cross that we can then live our lives as a sacrifice of loving service to God and to our brothers and sisters. One of the things I often reflect on in Lent and which grows increasingly unpleasant as I get older is just the absolute brutality of what Christ went through. The absolute brutality of crucifixion to the point that I quite honestly don't even like 
to read about it. I have to sometimes force myself. And I don't think there's anything that we can really compare that to in a frame of reference in our, in our culture. Absolutely horrible, absolutely brutal. And Roman soldiers and historians record this, took great pleasure in experimenting with how they placed people on crosses and, and what kinds of things they could do. And they found a very grotesque pleasure and experimenting in that way. And the scourging, and the beating, and the, and the being spat upon. What Christ suffered for us is really beyond our comprehension, both physically and spiritually. If you want to read more about what crucifixion was really like, I refer you to two books. One, Martin Hengel's book entitled Crucifixion, and the other by Eugenia Constanantu, The Crucifixion of the King of Glory. Something that's worth reading during Lent and Holy Week. But I stand, as I reflect on the brutality of Christ's sufferings, I stand astonished at the ends to which God has gone for the redemption of a sinner like me and like you. And on this night, this night in which our Lord instituted the most holy Eucharist of his body and blood, let us especially remember Jesus' words that we must be washed by him. Have you asked and allowed Jesus to wash you and make you clean? On this night on which Jesus established the Holy Eucharist, as we celebrate at the altar his once-for-all sacrifice, may we enter more deeply into the power and the mystery of what he has done for us. And as we do that, may we be filled with awe and love for God. May we be filled with peace and deep abiding joy because we are indeed God's children reconciled to him through the passion and death of Jesus, his eternal son. One of my very favorite hymns, which isn't sung all that often anymore, although Twyla Paris did a remake of it about 25 years ago that was wonderful. It's Charles Wesley's hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. And I want to read just three of the verses to you to conclude as we reflect on Christ suffering for us. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. My God has reconciled his pardoning voice, I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Let us pray.
So Abba, Father, indeed we do cry out to you with hearts full of awe and gratefulness. But may we also be filled with a deep and profound sense of mourning because it was my sin, it was our sin that compelled Christ to go to the cross. Thank you for those five bleeding wounds now in glorious majesty. Wounds that strongly plead on our behalf. Wounds that place the cross and the blood of Christ between us and your judgment. And Father, as we come to the Holy Eucharist, may we never take the words of the prayer lightly. As Jesus stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself a sacrifice once for all and gave his life's blood for us. Lord, take us deep into that mystery this evening and fill us with your gracious presence as we receive the body and blood of our Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.